Hello, Evil Inside listeners. I'm Daze, and you are tuning in to Evil Inside Podcast. I would first like to thank all those who have either subscribed or followed any of my social media for Evil Inside Podcast, such as Twitter, Instagram, the YouTube channel, and or your podcast platform. Thank you very much for being here, and I hope you really enjoy this episode. In today's episode, I will be talking about a story that may be difficult for many people to hear. It was hard for me to even do some of the research and take it all in myself. Much of the content in this episode may not be suitable or best for young viewers since it discusses the death of a young boy. It isn't graphic by no means, but it still may not be suitable for young listeners. This story has been featured in so many media outlets such as YouTube, a TV, news stations, other podcasts, Court TV, 48 Hours, America's Most Wanted, and there has even been a book that has been published by David Stout. To start all the publication of this story, it has still to this day remained unsolved. This story is often referred to as the boy in the box, or you may have also heard it as America's unknown child. It is so unbelievable that no one, absolutely no one has ever come forward with more definite knowledge or corroborated story of who this boy was or who he belonged to. How could absolutely no one know him, see him, or even claim him That to me in itself is truly evil inside. They were able to get his mitochondrial DNA from a tooth. He was subsequently reburied on November 11th in 1998 at the Ivy Hill Cemetery and Crematory in Philadelphia, which is just east of Fox Chase. His casket was donated. It is amazing on how people cared more about him and his resting place than those who have. Since this young boy has never been claimed or identified, it has been approximated that his age is about four to six years old at the time that he was found. He was found on February 25th, 1957 in a neighborhood by the name of Fox Chase within Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is uncertain as to the definite date he had passed, but they are estimating that he did in fact pass in February of 1957. He was buried near a field with a tombstone that read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. He was then later exhumed in 1998 so that his DNA could be taken. They were able to get his mitochondrial DNA from a tooth He was subsequently reburied on November 11, 1998 at the Ivy Hill Cemetery and Crematory in Philadelphia, which is just east of Fox Chase, 
his casket was donated. It is amazing how the people of Philadelphia cared more about him and his resting place than those who should have cared for this young boy. The boy had been discovered by a hunter who had come across him while hunting, but he did not come forward to the authorities. The hunter had been putting out traps, so he didn't call the police officials simply because he was afraid that he in turn would end up getting into trouble for laying traps down illegally. He had gone into a park that was just north and came across him in the brush as he was laying the traps down. He had seen a cardboard box that was left with the little boy inside. He was described as being naked and covered in a plaid flannel blank blanket. There was evidence of the boy being beaten. The box that the boy was found in was a box that carried a bassinet. Sometime later, approximately a few days later, a college student came across the boy. The circumstances, however, that the college student even came to find the boy is what some would probably call a chance encounter. The student's account was that he was driving and apparently saw a bunny going into a direction of where the student knew had traps. So he decided to pull over and make sure that the bunny was safe and sound. As he did this, he came across the box with the boy inside. Now, he did contact the police, despite his reluctance to interact with the police. The reasoning as to why he was reluctant to, uh, is unknown, but he did the right thing and he notified the authorities. The initial thoughts of the police were that, due to the boy's approximate age, that he would most likely be identified quickly. Why wouldn't he? If somebody was missing a child or concerned about their child, then they surely would have made a report to the authorities of their missing child. However, once they were able to get a closer look at the boy, they quickly came to realize that, in fact, that was probably not going to be the case. What they found was a little boy who was dirty, beaten, and so severely malnourished that he was very, very small for his age. He was said to have only been about three feet, six inches tall. There was evidence that his hair had been recently cut, but was easily visible that it had been matted at one point. He had many surgical scars, which to me would mean that someone had to know or have a record of who he was. Hospitals and doctors would have documentation. That is, if he ever was in the hospital for any injuries, or if he was ever taken to a doctor for regular visits. The scars he had were on his growing chin and ankles. The police still had hoped that they could possibly identify the boy who had seemed to be neglected and abused. So they took his fingerprints. Unfortunately, there was no success in his identification. During the crime scene investigation, there were a few items of clothing that were obtained. There were no other leads as to who did this, nor any other evidence that they could go based off of. 
Some of the items that were found were a man's blue corduroy hat, a child's scarf, and a man's handkerchief with the initial G on it. This is the condition that was visible to the authorities. The little boy had some type of illness or infection on his eye. It was apparent that his hair had been recently cut or even right after his death because there were pieces of hair that were found on and around his body. It was very evident that he had endured several hits to his head. It was ruled in his autopsy that his death was due to blunt force trauma. As mentioned previously, he was severely malnourished. This was another reasonable explanation for his small stature of three feet six inches. Another finding that they found was that there was evidence that the boy had vomited right before his death. There was evidence of a brown substance in his esophagus. The coroner had also noted that he had not eaten two to three hours before his death. There was an indication that he may have been submerged or in water for a lengthy amount of time because his hands and feet were wrinkled just like some people would get when they swim or if they're in water for a long period of time. As for the box that the boy was found in, it was a box for a bassinet. This particular bassinet box was produced by JCPenney's department store. This information led to the inability to link any specific suspect to the purchase of the item since it was a mass-produced item. The flannel blanket that the boy was wrapped in was not unique enough to be able to trace it back to anyone specifically as well. It was also mass produced and so that made it incredibly hard to narrow down who had purchased the item. As time went on, the people of the town were still trying to get answers and find out who had killed this little boy. In those efforts, they actually had made overall about 400,000 flyers that were posted or sent out in and around Pennsylvania in different locations such as the post office, police stations. These flyers had even been attached to the citizens of Pennsylvania's gas bills in order to raise awareness and reach out to as many people as possible and to hopefully get some answers. The flyer included a picture recreation of what the young boy would have looked like if he was happy. Thanks to the help of the forensic facial reconstruction, they were able to do a recreation photo. Over the years, there had been so many theories, ideas, thoughts on who or what happened to the young boy. I will tell you what they are and you can decide for yourself as to which story is most likely to be the most believable or realistic I will give you some of the information now that you've heard the facts and you will be able to decide for yourself. Now, keep in mind, even though these theories have been out there, none have ever even been proven to be true or as a credible lead to the case being solved. One possibility was that there was some kind of thought that Frederick Benonis, this is the guy college student that found the little boy that he was supposedly 
involved in the death somehow, but that idea quickly came to an end. He was a 26-year-old college student who was cleared by the police after he had taken a polygraph test and passed. Now, we all know now that polygraph tests are inconclusive, so who's to say if he really was innocent? Maybe he wasn't. But at the time, he was cleared of any wrongdoing. Possibility number two. The author, Stout, even came up with possible scenario as to what happened to the boy in the box. His idea was that the parents of the boy were unable to be located or found simply because they were maybe migrant workers or maybe even carnival employees. He felt that because the way they would travel or how they live, that they most likely would be in a state of mind that was where they were so frustrated and they eventually ended up snapping. But because of their way of life, they were unable to be located, tracked, or anything of that nature. His speculation was that the little boy had gotten slapped, which in turn made the boy cry, and then of course he got hit again and again, and in turn of the boy crying, it escalated to a situation to where the inevitable happened. The boy would die. The next possibility is a woman who is known to be called Mary. She was a businesswoman from Ohio. She came forward in February of 2002 with the story that she was the daughter of Arthur and Catherine Nicoletti. She claimed that they named the boy Jonathan, and she claimed that she had witnessed many horrible instances that the boy had endured. One of which he was, he was made to live in the basement. It was said that he was bought from a local couple who were supposedly his birth parents. He was bought to be used for sex. Mary stated that she was a first-hand witness to her mother beating him and he was being given a bath all because he had vomited some baked beans. After she had gone with her mom to dump the little boy in the box at an abandoned spot and left. Another version stated by Mary was reported to have been in May of 2002. And in this story, According to Mary, it doesn't mention that the boy was being sold to the couple just so that he could be used for sex, but it does state that he was purchased by her abusive mom in 1954. She claimed that for several years the little boy had been abused. This particular day, the mother had bashed his head against the wall after he had thrown up the baked beans. In an attempt to clean up the little boy, they gave him a bath, and he apparently had died during that bath. It also stated that his hair was cut so they could possibly make it a little bit more difficult in identifying who he was. Another version of that same story stated that he was thrown to the floor where he hit his head. As the police looked into it, they recognized that the evidence matched much of the evidence that he had eaten a brown substance and the wrinkled fingers from the bath. This information was not released to the public. 
The police also seem hopeful due to Mary's accounts of the boy's appearance, which all seemed to match. Essentially, as they looked into her history, they were unable to make any positive connections as to her accounts. As they looked into Mary's history, they found that she had had a mental illness which was discouraging. It also didn't help that friends and neighbors did not confirm that they had ever seen or heard or knew of the little boy residing at the home. Eventually, it was dismissed and never had any resolution. Another possibility came from a psychic who had apparently given information to a person that worked at the medical examiner's office and stated that the boy was from a local foster home. This person came forward in 1960. When the authorities went to investigate the home, they found some very coincidental similarities. They had found a bassinet in the home that matched what the box that the boy was found in. They had also found that the blankets hanging on their own clothesline were very similar to what the boy was found with. The employee thought that the boy was the son of the daughter whose father ran the home. Nevertheless, no connections or evidence was ever made and no results or no connections were ever made. There are some of the new investigations that are taking place by Barbara Ray Venture, who is looking into finding new evidence in order to solve the mystery of what happened to the young boy. She is a genealogist who reportedly assisted in the case of the Golden State Killer by using DNA and other genetic investigative measures to solve the case. The Mercury News was able to confirm with her that in the case of the boy in the box, that it is being looked into by her, but no further comment has been made. Aside from Ray Venture, there are other organizations such as the Philadelphia Police, the Vidal Society, and a group of investigators in the area that work on these types of cases, but they have refused to comment on it. Although the Vidoc Society hasn't commented on the case, it is evident that they are not giving up because an urgent request was put out asking for anybody to come forward with any information that could possibly help this case being solved. They asked that for anyone who had lived in the area and that was approximately around the age of 55 years or more to please come forward if they had any information regarding the young boy. It did mention the name Jonathan as well, so they may have found this evidence that the boy's name could have been Jonathan, or they could truly just be going by the account of Mary suggesting that they named the boy Jonathan. And if that is correct, then could Mary's story in fact be true? This story has been unsolved for years now and counting. It is likely that unless someone comes forward with information, it may never be solved. The case still has no credible leads to pursue. It is urgent that if anyone has any clues, leads, information, and or suspicions that they contact the Pennsylvania authorities immediately. Someone somewhere 
knows or has a feeling of who may be the person that hurt this little boy. It could be that they remember him in their home or remember seeing him around their home. This little boy does deserve to be at peace and the evil inside those involved in his murder be brought to justice. Now that you have heard the facts and the possible theories of what happened to the boy in the box, out of all these theories, there have been several accounts of Mary's stories. There are some things that aren't all exact, but essentially a lot of the story has been the same. It is hard to think that the information she has come forward with could all just be made up. Much of the details, like the wrinkled hands, the cut hair, the brown substance in his stomach, is hard to just dismiss. How would she know these things if she wasn't there? I do think that the police dismissing her accounts is a mistake. Her mental status shouldn't have any relevance to the many circumstantial similarities that it was her parents or that she had first-hand knowledge of what happened to the little boy. I do not think that the neighbors and friends accounts of never having any recollection of ever seeing the boy as relevant because as we all know, many times in child abuse cases, the children are sheltered, locked away from the rest of the world simply just to protect the people that are actually doing the abuse. So them never knowing of him seems realistic to me, but the police shouldn't have dismissed based on that either. I didn't come across any information about the questioning or interrogation of Mary's parents. It is sad to know that the mystery of who hurt this little boy goes free. With all of the forensic possibilities we have now, you would think that there would be a way to track the person who killed him. It is with great hope that genealogist Ray Venture could possibly come up with some verifiable information of finding a sibling, relative, or distant relative through DNA that could lead to someone that could give information in finding the birth parents of the young boy and therefore what happened to him. If there's anyone who knows anything about the case or has any type of first-hand knowledge or information that could help find what happened to the little boy or help find who killed him, please contact the local police and help him be at peace. Let's make the people pay for what they have done to him. If you would like to see the true crime documentary by Stuffed Animals, look it up on YouTube. I will also post the link in the description if you would like to view that documentary. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for your support. Please share any of my links and information with any other EI fans that you may possibly know. Make sure you follow me on Instagram at Evil Inside Podcast or Twitter at Evil Inside Pod. The YouTube channel is Evil Inside Podcast, and you can also listen on your platform for podcasts such as Spotify, Podbean, or Apple Podcast. Please feel free to leave comments, suggestions, or ideas below. You can also send me a direct message if you prefer. And until next time, EIers, beware of EI.
everywhere.